Alright, we're continuing today with our series on um, making disciples that make disciples. And I want to go back to a theme that Matt introduced right at the very first Sunday that we started the course. And you might recall that he spoke on the heart behind discipleship. And that theme came up again in the first session we did with Simon Holly. Uh, you might remember he said that our desire to make disciples must be rooted in God's heart of love for the lost. And so today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you a, a, a parable um, that gives us an insight into, the, uh, into God's heart of love for the lost. The extraordinary, loving Father heart of God. And you can find it in Luke chapter 15. It's often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son, but I think it would be more accurately called the uh, parable of the amazing and loving Father. So at the moment I'm going to tell you that story, um, but for us to understand it, we really need to know a bit of background. You know, we often miss some of the impact of um, the parables and the stories that Jesus told, because we live in a very different cultural context. So the first point we need to grasp when we're going to listen to this story is that this took place within the context of a very tight-knit community. Um, that's not something that's spelt out here, but it's something that would be understood by the people that were listening um, to Jesus. And second, this community was one that was rooted in a culture that emphasised honour and shame. What people thought of you was really important. So you would act in such a way as to bring honour to yourself and to your family. And if people acted in a different way, if they acted in a shameful way, in a way that brought dishonour, then they would be scorned and punished. Now, there are cultures like that in the world today. Um, but ours isn't one of them. And I think sometimes we find it quite hard to understand how people can become so passionate about things which to us just don't seem that much of a deal. But we won't understand this story unless we understand that as the context that it's set in. And the third piece of background we need is, is follows on from that really. And that's in the village culture that Jesus was speaking into. There was a ceremony which isn't mentioned here in this parable, but would have been assumed by the audience. And, and that ceremony arguably forms sort of the focus of this story. You see, the prodigal son brought dishonor not just on his family, but on the community. And when he left that community, he was effectively excommunicated. And the expectation was that he would never dare show his face in that place again. But if he did, well then the community would express his displeasure. If such a person was seen returning to the village, then the community would come out to meet them, not to greet them, to welcome them back again, but to shout their insults and to throw stones, even on occasion to kill. You see, then this story is a story about high stakes. It's about passionate emotion, life and death, honour and shame, betrayal and overwhelming love. So I'm going to tell the story, and it's a story which is obviously very familiar to most of us here, and so in an attempt to bring some freshness to it, and also just to try and highlight the point that I want to make, I've dramatised it a bit, and I'm going to tell it from the point of view of one of the servants in the, in the father's house. There has been the most extraordinary drama playing out over the last few months. If you've got a few minutes, gather round. And I'll tell you the story. 
See, I live in a village in the northwest of Galilee. It's a resource-sized village, but not so big that we don't all know exactly what's going on in everybody else's life. See, most of the houses here are crowded together along the main street. And at the end of that street, there is a, a clearing with a tree in the middle of it. And beyond that, the main street becomes a track. And it goes all the way out there to Phoenicia. In fact, on a clear day, you can see all the way to the coast. In the mornings, you'll see some of the, the ladies of the village. They'll come and they'll sit under the tree and they'll sell some of their produce. And a few tomatoes and some garlic, some onions, a bit of corn, that sort of thing. In the afternoon, if you came down, you'd see the elders of the village, and they'd be gathering round the tree, discussing whatever it is the elders discuss. <laughs> Life in the village here has gone on pretty much the same, year after year, generation after generation. That is, until one day, a few months ago, when the peace of the village was shattered. Before that, I get to that, I'd better introduce myself. My name's Nathaniel, and I'm a servant. I work for one of the most wealthy men in the community. He's got a large house right here in the centre of the village. Lots of fields, lots of animals. He's got servants that work in the fields, and he's got a few of us that work here in the house. He's a good man. He's one of the most respected of the elders of the village. But for all that, for some time now, he hasn't been happy. You see, he's got two sons... And he loves these sons. I mean, he really loves them. But there's been tension now for some time. And one day, it was late in August, just three months or so ago, that things came to a head. It was in the morning. I had uh, just come into the main living room to bring some fruit for their breakfast. Something in the younger son's face made me stop. He had an insolent sort of look. And he was starting to address his father. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. He was actually asking his father for his portion of the inheritance. Well, I'm sure you know as well as I do what he meant by that. He was saying he couldn't wait for his father to die. He wanted it now. It wouldn't have been more dishonorable if he'd come just right out with it and said, I wish you were dead. Now, I quickly walked out of the room. I wanted to get out before the inevitable explosion of anger from my master. I mean, honor obviously demanded a severe punishment. Really, the son could expect no less than to be beaten and to be thrown out of the house. Once safely in the next room, I braced myself for the outburst, but it never came. Everything had gone quiet. Then I heard the father speaking. Very cautiously, I peered my head around the door. My master was visibly upset, but he was talking calmly. I couldn't believe what he was saying. He was granting the younger son's request. Yes, he said, you can take the fields at the north end of the village, and yes, you can have your share of the cows and the goats too. You take them and do what you will with them. I quickly went and told my fellow servants what I'd heard, and of course the news was soon all over the village. No one quite believed it. No patriarch had ever acted in this way before. In fact, no one could ever remember anything similar happening anywhere, ever. The son had broken a relationship with his father and should have been sent out in complete disgrace. Instead, if the story of being true was true, then the, 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 the son was being given what he asked for. Well, it was soon, soon enough shown to be true, because later that day, the younger son started to sell off all the things he'd been given, and just a few days later, he left. Well, I, for one, didn't expect to see him again. 
Frankly, I didn't think that after what he'd done, he'd have the nerve to show his face in the village again. You see, like all the villages around here, we have a ritual uh, which we perform if someone like him does dare to come back. It's called the cutting off ceremony. Basically, if someone who has lost his inheritance dares to come back home, we fill a clay pot with burnt corn and burnt nuts and we break it in front of him. And down, down the street, all the people come out of their homes and they shout, so-and-so has been cut off from the people and they refuse to have anything more to do with him. Now, of course, not everyone restricts themselves to shouting. I'm sure you can imagine the scene. Tempers rise and people um, and things get out of hand very quickly. I mean, in practice, very few people ever would dare to come back. Well, it wasn't very many days before reports started to come back and I'm sorry to say they confirmed my worst fears. We heard stories of lavish parties, of expensive gifts for his new friends. He was apparently renting one of the grandest houses in the town, eating the best food, wearing the best clothes. He'd taken a lot of money with him, but at this rate, it wasn't going to last long. But sure enough, it soon ran out. I suppose it lasted a couple of months or so. A couple of months to lose a whole inheritance. Our village was bitter. There was no way he'd come back. Unless, unless, just possibly, there was the chance he could earn enough money to pay back his father. But there was little chance of that. I mean, of course, his timing was bad. His money ran out just at the same time as famine hit. And there was no work available, especially for an outsider. He didn't manage to get a job of sorts. And you won't believe it, but this, this Jewish boy, one of the sons of one of the village elders, a speaker in the synagogue, no less, he got a job looking after pigs. But it gets worse. He didn't get paid, and he desperately needed the money. But he didn't even get enough food to eat. He was so desperate that he even thought about eating the pig's food. Well, finally, he started thinking. He realized there was just perhaps another way. It wasn't going to be easy. In fact, it was going to be incredibly hard. But he was out of options. He realized that even us servants got fed and his father had money. Perhaps, if he played his cards right, he might get both food and money. It was his last chance, a final gamble. So this was his plan. He would go back to his father's house. Okay, so he'd have to endure the wrath of the village and he wouldn't um, probably come through that unscathed. He had to get to his father. And obviously his father would be really angry, but if he could make a show of being repentant, then he might be able to deflect some of that anger. What was important was he got a chance to make his proposal. And basically what he hoped is that his father would agree to take him on as a servant so he could learn a trade and he could earn money to repay his debts to the family and to the community. I'm looking back, I'm amazed. He still just thought it was about the money. Money and food, that's all he thought about. What about the hurt he had caused his father? The relationship that he had broken? Anyway, he made his plan, and then he started the long journey home. Meanwhile, what about my master? Well, his reaction wasn't at all what I expected. And I assumed that he'd be really angry. But it wasn't like that at all. The fact is, his heart was broken. I've never seen him look so sad. 
He spent long hours on the roof looking in the direction of Phoenicia where his son had gone. Even when he took his place with the elders, his gaze would wander in the direction of the road. I didn't realize at the time, but there was only one thing that mattered to him now, and that was his son would come home. What I thought was just a mournful gazing in the direction of his lost son was actually a careful watching out. He knew that if his son did come home, he'd have to endure the wrath of the village and would at best be humiliated and possibly might even be killed. So he was actually making plans of his own, plans so outrageous that I still can't quite believe it, even though I saw it happen. So, early this morning, my master was sitting on the roof, as usual, just looking in the direction of the road. I had just taken him a glass of water and was just going back down to the kitchen when I heard this almighty clatter and commotion. Well, if I live to be a hundred, I don't expect to see anything like it again. My master was practically flying down the stairs. Before I could even react, he was out the front door and running down the street. Yet again, my master did the most amazing thing. See, he picked up his robes and he just ran. He just ran right down the main street in front of everybody. One of the most respected elders of the village, running like a child. Well, of course, everyone just turned and watched. Which, as it turned out, was what he wanted because it drew attention from that little figure that was in the distance, walking towards the meeting place. Now, some people had already seen him and were gathering ready. And the course of news was travelling like wildflower. The younger son is returning, prepared to meet him. But now, the father, my master, was running in a completely undignified and shameful way up towards his son. They met just out there by the tree. My master fell at the feet of his son and embraced him. The boy didn't have a chance to say anything. He was so completely stunned, as was everyone else. Why would his father humiliate himself in this way for him? who had messed up so badly. I stood back. How was the son going to react to this amazing display of love? What was he going to say? Finally, he knelt down, lowered his eyes and spoke. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm not really an emotional person, <clears throat> but it brought tears to my eyes. Not that much chance to dwell on it, because the next thing I knew, my master was shouting at me, go back to the house at once, bring my best robe, my ring, and some sandals, and tell the kitchen staff to kill the fatted calf and prepare a feast. I flew back, grabbed the things, and ran back as fast as I could. Everyone was gathering round now. No one knew quite what to do. Honour demanded the boy be punished, humiliated, cut off. But how could they do that when the father was acting as he was? He had humiliated himself and was now embracing his son. As soon as I got back, my master dressed him with the cloak, the ring, and the sandals. Excitement rippled through the crowds and watched in amazement. My master was accepting the boy back as his son. The tension was palpable, a mixture of delight and a fury. Of course, there's no question of enacting the cutting off ceremony now. The son was wearing his own father's cloak and ring and had his sandals on his feet and was walking back now 
with the father by his side. Then the master turned and said to everyone, let's have a feast and celebrate. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So here we are, back at the house. The band is playing, the drums are pounding. <clears throat> People are eating and drinking and talking. You can feel the excitement in the air. People will talk about this day for years to come. My master has found his son. In the most spectacular way, he has reconciled him to himself, received him back into the family, and everyone is in awe of what he has done. We all knew he was good, but we had no idea how good. So I just want to emphasize a couple of points from that story. <coughs> Excuse me. The first is that the son did nothing to deserve the treatment I'm going to copy him. The son did nothing to deserve the treatment that he received. There was nothing he did. And despite his plans and his, his thoughts of what he might do, there was actually nothing that he could have done to earn favour with his father. He deserved punishment. He deserved to be cut off. Thank you very much. <clears throat> the distance of time and culture makes it quite difficult, I think, for us to grasp um, how big his offence was. But the people listening, and in particular the Pharisees, they understood, and they were indignant. In their minds, the father should never have forgiven the son. They were on the side of the younger son, who was angry with the father. What he'd done was outrageous. But even that isn't the end of it, because the father didn't just forgive the son. He paid the price for the son's wickedness. He bore the cost. In a culture where honour was everything, he humiliated himself to save the son. Now there's a chorus we used to sing um, that spoke of the overwhelming, reckless love of God. And I know that some people took offence at that line because they say, how dare we say that God is reckless? But that's exactly what we're seeing in this parable. See, God lavishes his love at great cost on people who are completely unworthy. Son Holy said that if we uh, want to be disciples to multiply, it starts with us being captivated by the Father heart of God. Firstly, his heart of love for us, but then his heart of love for those around us. And Jesus told us this story in part so that we have a glimpse into what the Father's heart is really like. And what we find is it's shocking, it's unbelievable, it's outrageous, it's unreasonable. It goes against everything that we would reasonably expect, everything that those around us would expect. It goes against everything that religion would teach us which should be the case. And yet here it is. The heart of God is filled to overflowing with a love which is incomprehensible in its passionate abandonment. How do we respond to this kind of love? Well, first, there may be some here this morning who've never heard this before. Perhaps you've no idea that this is how God loves you, and you wonder whether that can really apply to you. And if that is the case, well, the short answer is, well, yes, it can, it does. He does love you in that way. And, and again, if that is you, please do make yourself known to someone afterwards, because we'd really love to talk with you more. For those of us 
who are already following Jesus? How do we respond? Well, I mean, there's, there's so much that can be said, but I want to be focused, so I'm just going to make a few brief points. The first is that we need to hear the truth and hold on to the truth. That the Father loves us in this way, because we do have an enemy who will try and steal that away from us, cause us to doubt it. Don't let him. This is glorious truth, and this is something for us to live in the good of. Second, let's continue to love others in the body in the same way that our Father has loved us. See, one of the ways that we will experience the love of God for, for us is when we receive it from each other. And that's great for us, but you know, it's also a witness in the world. Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love each other. And I think we do that well as a body already. I want to encourage us this morning to think, how can we do it even better? Thirdly, then, we want this love to spill outwards. We've got to remember that in terms of this story, we were all once the prodigal son. We all broke relationship with our father. None of us deserved to be forgiven and brought into God's family as sons and daughters. Paul reminds us in his letter to the Ephesians that we were all dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were all, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. See, we mustn't allow ourselves to believe the lie that somehow we were more deserving, that we were less bad than the people out there. No, by nature, we were all children of wrath. But, because of God's mercy and grace, we have been saved. And that same lavish love that's been poured out on us is for the rest of the world too. And our Father wants us to share it. And part of the point of us doing this series just now is that we want to encourage all of us to be looking outwards again. You know, Luke 15 verse 20 says that while the Son was still a long way off, the Father saw him and was filled with compassion, and so he ran. You know, we're surrounded by lost people, and often they seem very far off, and it can be hard to know what to do. But we can start by looking and by seeing them. And we can pray that we will be moved by compassion for them. And then we will be in a good place for whatever the next step is that God will call us to do.